Hello, friends, and welcome to Something to Talk About, a podcast where different people come together to talk about the Word of God and the various ways it applies to our lives. This season, we are talking about the book of Habakkuk and what it looks like to practice faithful, unconditional wrestling with God. I'm Amber Barrett, and joining my co-host Aaron and me in conversation today are Luke and Julie Brower. And we are glad to have the two of y'all with us today, and we're looking forward to hearing a little bit about how the two of y'all met. So Julie, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, Luke and I met in Grand Rapids, Michigan at Reform Bible College. I think it's called Kuiper College now. I was a transfer student in, and Luke had attended for a year, and so we had some mutual friends, and we had one friend in particular that kept saying over and over to me, you really need to meet my friend Luke. And I guess he had come back and forth and visited and things, but we never connected that year. And then early on the next year, we met in September. Uh, I was I was the guy with the motorcycle. Oh, he, he was the guy with the yes. motorcycle. I didn't know I was telling that part of the story. Uh, <laughs> was that a draw? The um, motorcycle? I don't know that it was for me. I mean, honestly, I had had a boyfriend, a pretty serious boyfriend. I had just transferred in. I'd come off of a year of camp counselor and I had a lot of really good friends and I was having a really good time just living with girlfriends. And I didn't feel at all like I needed a boyfriend. But Luke did show up and everybody was talking about him. It's a small school and you're tall and you had a motorcycle and people all were talking about Luke. I knew he liked me because girls were asking if they could go and ride on his motorcycle. And he always said, I don't have a helmet. And one day he said, hey, I brought a helmet. Do you want to go get coffee? And I thought, oh, so um, (laughs) we went out for coffee. And I remember going back to the house I was living with my friends. And I said, oh, I'm going to marry that guy. And I knew And I think you did, too. We knew pretty Mm -hmm. quickly. So we met in September, got engaged in December, and got married in August. And that was 23 years ago. So we were really young. Maybe a little stupid. But (laughs) here we are. (laughs) That's awesome. How how old were y'all? 23 and 21. 21, yeah. That's a fun story. It is a fun story. Well, I always enjoy hearing people's stories, like hearing y'all's story. And we want to know a little bit more about you. So what I'm going to do is ask... Our first things first question, we ask it at the beginning of every episode. I'll ask you the question, you'll answer it, and also give a brief bio on yourself. All right, so the first things first question is, what is the first costume, because we are just coming off of Halloween last night, what is the first costume you remember dressing up in? And Luke, you get to kick us off. So uh, this will go back to my story, but the first time that I remember dressing up for Halloween was when Julie and I first got married at an 80s Halloween party with some couples at church. Okay, you didn't get married at an 80s Halloween party. I did not get get married at the party. (laughs) This is the first time. So it was after we were married. Gotcha. Uh That is the first time I remember being dressed up for Halloween. Did you dress up like an 80s band member or just an 80s individual? I just remember the members only jacket. Oh, I remember wearing that jacket, but I think it was just, you know, it was just a fun, uh, you know, let's get a bunch of couples together, do the eighties, have a Halloween party, a big fire. That's, that's the first time I remember dressing up for Halloween. Which is a long ways into your life to be a full-sized married adult. (laughs) Do you still have the jacket? I feel no. like that's a hot commodity. No, no, no. I, I, I should. You're right. Mm, this would be worth too, something. Too bad. <laughs> All right. Well, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah. So I, I grew up in a Dutch immigrant community in Canada, in Ontario, outside of Toronto, sort of a rural farming and blue collar community. Um, I'm the oldest of six kids and grew up in the church. Very, very strict 
I struggled a lot as a kid with Christianity, with the culture and the traditions that I was growing up in as an immigrant kid, and also uh, being bullied a lot as a kid. So that's all sort of a significant part of my story and will probably play into some of my answers as we talk through this today. Yeah. And why you got a motorcycle. And mm. yeah, that's probably <laughs> true. <laughs> all right, Julie, what about you? I'm Julie. I married to Luke. We have four kids and we have spent the last 10 years working in Haiti. Um, we've been here in Augusta for a little bit just because of the unrest there. And so I grew up in Michigan, also in a pretty conservative church. And so that will probably play into some of my answers. Does it play into when you first dressed up is the oh, question for Halloween? Yes. Um, I do remember dressing up as a kid for Halloween. It was not like it is today. I don't think trunk or treats were a thing. And I feel like costumes have evolved a lot since it just has become this whole family event. Because I'm from Michigan, it was often cold on Halloween. And so we kind of would just dig through closets and grab what was there. So I remember being a pirate or a scarecrow or a farmer or if it was warm enough, whatever sports team we were playing at the moment. So we would just grab those uniforms and go out. We also often went around with pillowcases. That's the thing I remember the most about Halloween is that once we were old enough to not go with our parents, we took pillowcases because that's how long and hard we would trick or treat. Exactly. My son came home with a pillowcase last night, actually dressed up like a soccer player. So there you go. And he was very disappointed that it was like only a quarter filled up. So he said his friends did not go quite as hardcore as he did. So the pillowcase is for your bag? Yeah. Yes. Wow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not familiar with that concept. Fancier people have fancier containers, but I'm with you. <laughs> pillowcase all the way. sling them over your shoulder. They're easier mm. to carry. You don't have to run home to dump it. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. We might have to upgrade to that. Mm. It's fun. I did not grow up dressing up for Halloween. And I think you're right. I don't remember Trunk or Treat being anything, maybe till I was much older. But I don't think I, I don't have a memory of that. But I do have a fun memory. And don't fact check me. I feel like you've maybe, have we done this question before? I don't, I don't remember we have. Okay. I feel like I've said, I can't, honestly, I couldn't remember. But I do remember dressing up for school plays like as Annie Oakley and Little Bo Peep were like my two <laughs> earliest dress ups. And I got to say, like Annie Oakley, like I, I'm resonating with that as an adult. You had a little bit of that internal vibe going on. Maybe anyway. a little bit. And I yeah. still have my kids still have the fringe vest that my mom made me yes. in the dress ups at home. How fun is that? That is awesome. Mm -hmm. Very All fun. right. Well, I'm with y'all. Small town, Midwest, Indiana. So I don't know if that really means anything, except I didn't dress up that much either. And I remember dressing up, visiting my grandma actually in Michigan, dressed up like Raggedy Ann. Oh, that's I don't cute. remember exactly how I pulled that off, but I do remember doing that. And I remember dressing up one time as a ladybug with my best friend. Yep. And we were matching. And it was homemade costumes, it's homemade. right? Yeah. I don't remember yeah. my mom actually ever purchasing a costume. I mean, maybe a hat or something, you know, probably on discount right after from the year before. But <laughs> totally. this whole like go buy this most amazing costume, I don't feel like that was part mm -hmm. of my childhood. Or family coordinated costumes. That's next level. That yeah. is next level. And I saw several of those last mm -hmm. night and I was impressed. But it is yeah, impressive. that was definitely a step up from what mm -hmm. we used to do. 
Well, we are glad to have the two of y'all with us today. We're taking a little bit of a step aside from what we normally do. Oftentimes when we're on this podcast, we're talking about a specific portion of scripture. But today we're going to be talking in general from themes in Habakkuk. We've been doing a whole season on the book of Habakkuk up to this point. And today we're going to be talking about a book some of us read as a supplemental resource, which is Travis Scott's book, A Faithful Doubt. Would you tell us, Luke, a little bit about how you actually know Travis, and then we'll move into what we're going to do with our podcast today. Yeah. So Travis and I went to uh, Bible college together and he had just become a Christian and I was working through what it meant to be a Christian after sort of recommitting myself. And so the two of us kind of just got to know each other at this small school, uh, spent a ton of time together and ended up eventually standing up in each other's weddings and going through Covenant Seminary together as well, spending a little time in St. Louis afterwards. And then he ended up in New Zealand and Julie and I ended up in Haiti. So I love those longtime friends. I mean, people who've walked through major points of life, like marriage with you. And when you've known someone that long, you know, the good things that have happened in their life and you know, the hard things that have happened in their lives. You're yes. not in your head, Luke. It's cool because we were uh, j- just together with Travis and his uh, church up in Pittsburgh a few weeks ago. They've supported uh, Julie and I in our work in Haiti and just fun to, to be with them and to watch him pastor mm-hmm. and uh, to see his family grow up and for them to see ours. And so, yeah, just to share ministry when you've shared all those years, it's a it's a really cool thing. Yeah. And to read somebody's book when you know them that yeah, well. That's, that is a real treat. Yeah. And it's very much who Travis is. So I I love the book because I can hear it. I can literally hear him talking in the book. Yeah, I imagine that you can. When I was thinking what I appreciate, if you were to say one of the overarching themes of Habakkuk is that the righteous shall live by faith. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that Travis is is hoping to do seems like to me in that book is to help us to understand what faith looks like and to push against the idea that faith doesn't have room for doubt. And that if you find yourself doubting or wrestling or struggling with hard questions, then you're not living by faith. And so he really takes the time and the wise exposition to work through a book like Habakkuk, who is saying the same thing, that faith isn't the absence of doubt, but it is being faithful in the midst of those doubts and taking those doubts to the Lord. So that's yeah. what we're going to unpack a little bit today. The way we're going, we've organized this podcast is that each question comes with a quote that's directly from Travis's book. So we're going to read the quote, either Aaron or I will, and then you're going to answer a question pertaining to it. All right. So Aaron's going to kick us off by reading a quote from the chapter, The Prophet's Burden. All right. I love this quote. Thanks for pulling that one out. And it reminds me so much of just when we were working through this, the rest of this content and just going back through those old sermons that George preached. Like he, this is what intrigued me about Habakkuk in the first place. So here we go. Habakkuk's complaint is that God just doesn't seem to care. Habakkuk says God is forcing him to see all sorts of injustice and pain and it's killing him. Meanwhile, God seems indifferent. He is inactive and idle in the face of misery and pain. Habakkuk is a prophet called to deliver God's word, and yet no word from God comes to the prophet. Instead, he is plagued and burdened by God's silence. So when we're thinking about this quote, have you ever been like Habakkuk and felt like God is silent in the face of evil, especially the evil and those who claim to be his people? Also, let's talk about how we experience the burden of God's silence. What does that look like in our lives? Yeah, this it's a... It's a tough question. It's a great quote from the book, and it's a really tough question. I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I love that 
just the process of reading the book and being asked these questions forces you to think about yourself. And one of the things that I was realizing as even as I was preparing for this was just how important it has been to me throughout my Christian walk to find answers that Christianity for me has been a, a lot of it has been in pursuit of answers or explanations for the way that things are for the way that I am, um, for the way the world is. And so as I was thinking about God's silence in the face of these, I, I realized that one of the things that I have been incredibly uh, prone to do, especially in my youth, was to take his silence as license for me to kind of fill in the blanks. That in my quest for answers, I'm constantly pulling in the data around reading, reading, reading. And instead of accepting silence, filling in that space with answers that I was often creating on my own. That's super helpful. And I think maybe the opposite of that is, or maybe even a parallel, a sister response would be to just create our own busyness and movement towards what we want to do. It's like, okay, Lord, I haven't heard from you on this particular thing. So I'm just going to move in this direction thinking it's good, but not really sure of how, of how the Lord is showing up in that space. So I think that's a, Super helpful to help us remember that we can rest and be present and wait upon the Lord. What did you think, Julie? Yeah, I think I was just really convicted that those are often the spaces that God's convicting me, right? I may be frustrated or angry that he um, He seems silent and he's not answering, you know, in a great injustice I see. And usually that's the place where he's showing me either my role in it or the ways that you know, I've participated in it or things like that. So it's oftentimes when I, I feel like when God is silent, he's usually something big is coming that he's going to teach me, which usually makes me real mad. I think something that y'all are both hitting on is that we know God's character. If we've been in relationship with him long enough, we know that he's not indifferent and we know that he doesn't heap burdens upon us so that when we sense this type burden of silence that we do feel it is is inconsistent with God's character. And I think that does create that tension. We see it in Habakkuk's response. We feel it in our own and we do have trouble resting. I think in that silence when we haven't seen the Lord move or heard what he is directing us to move towards, then I think that we're, we're just uncomfortable in that waiting pattern. Yeah, that's that's 100% what I was facing in myself, even as we were talking about, just that sense that, that you would be able to rest in it mm. or that you would be able to accept it. Um, for me, I think there was a, a sense just for years that there just there has to be an explanation mm -hmm. for everything. And I, I, if I just look hard enough in the Bible or in someone who's writing about the, whatever specific topic, I'm going to find an answer that is satisfactory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think coming from churches with really rich traditions of knowledge, right, and theologians, and there's so much about that growing up that I'm so grateful for and thankful for, and yet it does kind of push you toward believing that there is an answer always. And so you can you know, be left with almost feeling like I'm clearly missing something. This mm -hmm. is my problem. You know, God is speaking. I'm just, something's wrong with me maybe, or I can't, mm. I'm not grasping it, which makes silence sad and uncomfortable. Well, and the cultural waters that we swim in is such that we are always achieving. We're always producing. We're always moving forward. So to have that moment of 
weight upon the Lord. It just, it doesn't fit our cultural narrative. It makes us uncomfortable. So there are just, I think, a raft of reasons that we have trouble showing up in this space and waiting upon the Lord. Well, and I'm thinking of when y'all are both saying that, just resonating with what both of you are saying, and the fact that Habakkuk would have been a prophet who was, to some degree, I don't know how often, used to receiving God's words. That was what he did. Mm -hmm. Like, he heard from the Lord and he communicated. And so the fact that, I mean, Lord, you're silent in the face of all of this is something that he's not used to. And at least for me, what you're saying, Luke, that part about thinking that there is an answer and if I just think hard enough or look hard enough, then I'll find it and sort of an innate an innate belief that I, I can find it or it will make sense to me or something in my brain, my heart, my whatever is able to grasp all things. And so just you know, even when I love when the Lord responds to Habakkuk, like, I'm going to tell you, but you're not going to get it. Yeah. <laughs> and and that it's very difficult for me, even just last night, waking up at 3 a.m. thinking about some things I don't like being stuck and just not knowing. Yeah. And Julia, to your point, maybe we have in whatever ways we have come to this, gotten this belief that something's wrong with me if I can't know or if the Lord doesn't say, instead of that sometimes that silence is intentional. And oftentimes, like what you're saying, it's because he's using it intentionally and um, for reasons that we can't always see. So sometimes God's silence is the thing that burdens us, but sometimes it's not his silence. It's actually his clear declarations. And sometimes there's things in the Bible that we know that the Lord has clearly spoken that makes us uncomfortable, um, that gives us a hard time, that sometimes the Bible answers our questions in ways that trouble us. Uh, can y'all describe maybe what that looks like for you? This is the part of the podcast where I went, oh no, what did I do? No! Um, because I think this is, you know, I'm a doubter. I like answers. I, I hate brokenness. I hate pain. I hate death. It is how I am. It is how I always have been. But I feel like living in Haiti, it's it's like God every day saying to me, like, how about now? In the face of babies dying, am I still good? Or people starve, am I still good? You know, when gangs take over. And I don't have answers to that. One thing that was really helpful for me in reading through Travis's book again and thinking about after I said, oh, no, um, but agreeing to sit here today with y'all, I'm grateful because it, it was a really neat way to see that God has worked in my life. There has been growth and change. I'm still me. And I think it's how he's made me to be. And I think there's a lot more oh, just peace in saying maybe it's because I'm supposed to be this way. We're not supposed to be comfortable and okay with hard things and bad things and brokenness. But I don't have an answer for why, you know, hard things happen and bad things happen other than sin and brokenness. And that I believe there, that I believe like, I think you talked about it last week a little bit, but like this gritty faith of like, I don't know, but it is, and I will stand on that. And there is, yeah, a belief there, um, but my feelings don't always match up with it. And I'm so grateful that it isn't about my feelings. Like mm -hmm. the cross is the cross and it's not about how I feel about it every day because I, I, if I'm honest, I'd be in trouble. I don't feel it every day. I like how you're thinking about that. And I think that it's such comfort to me to know that when you feel grieved by the brokenness that you see around you, that you know that you you trust and understand that Jesus hates it more than we do, mm -hmm. enough that he gave his life for it and enough to bring 
rightness mm-hmm. to the world. So I think that as much as we hate it and we are grieved by it because we are filled by his spirit, like knowing that he hates the injustice and the death and the sin around us even more. There's some peace to that. Oh yeah. There's great comfort in that, right? When when I think about, you know, wrestling with what the Bible does say, for me, it has always been the the concept of judgment. And I think that goes back in some ways to being a little kid in a sort of tough Christian environment um, where I just, I knew that I wasn't good enough. And uh, I had such a deep sense of that and the fear that came with it. And so as much as I've grown and as much as I have uh, been trained in theologically and and through scripture seen, you know, that at an intellectual level, God is holy, that he demands, that that holiness demands judgment, that Jesus has taken that on. Um, it's still, uh, it still gets me. And I don't want that judgment for myself, which obviously the gospel of Christ is a tremendous comfort in that. But I don't want that judgment for other people. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I fear for them. And that's kind of what I sit with when I think about this question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me too, because it can be for me one of those things that I want to have some type of explanation for that makes it seem a little bit more palpable. Mm-hmm. And of course, you do hold it together with the understanding of God's holiness, like you said, and his love and those things. But there is sometimes that I read maybe even just the particular accountings of what that judgment looks like pretty clearly in the old Testament. And remember that God hasn't sort of switched sides in the new Testament, that even though that judgment has fallen on Christ, the nature of that judgment, and then what is there for people outside of Christ still remains. It is difficult for me to reconcile the fact that, that the Lord calls the shots. I guess that's a weird way of saying it, but at the end of the day he does. And I don't, nobody else does. And And it's, I don't always like that. No. And it, it requires, submission Mm -hmm. from me there is something comforting again for me about it though is just realizing like god's in charge of that i don't have to be so i don't have the final say which is great like god has called me to do you know to be a person to show his love to speak his truth and yet i'm so grateful that it isn't my job to decide and to be the judge because I'm sure there's lots of things that I'm quite proud of that I think I'm probably better than I am, but I'm very thankful I'm not the judge in that scenario. Which is a good one just to remember in in daily life on on a lesser level when you say I'm not the judge. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm not the judge. But there's plenty of things I feel judgmental about. Oh, for sure. (laughs) Just to remember. Oh yeah, I'm not the judge. Yeah. Yeah, I think too, just to realize in that, in the midst of that, that only a good servant king can be a kind and fair and all-knowing judge. And we've already talked about this a little bit as far as 
how Jesus has come to bring justice, and we've talked about faithful doubt. So in this um, section, we'll look at this quote. I love this because it brings into the fore that we are looking at life through an eternal lens. If we are in God's kingdom, that we no longer have to think of life in our short little 70, 80 years that we get on this planet. So this will help us think about that. So this is the quote from Travis's book. Those of us who live in the shadow of the cross have even more reason than Habakkuk to trust whatever comes to pass is because he is good. God loves us so much. He cares so much that he came himself and became a man to suffer with us and for us. In the person of Jesus, God takes on flesh. He becomes one of us, entering our darkness. To use the language of Habakkuk, the wicked surrounded Christ, the righteous one. Justice for him was paralyzed. He suffers violence, strife, contention, and destruction for us to save us from them. He becomes one of the fish caught in the net of the wicked in order to burst it apart and bring you freedom. This doesn't remove all of our questions or doubts, but knowing what God has done for us in Jesus enables us to better accept what he allows to happen. Knowing what Jesus has done for you can help you accept whatever he allows to come to pass in your life, not without pain, not without questions, not without frustration. But when you know more of who this God is and all that he's done for you, you can cry out in faithful doubt that he is your God. He is your only holy one. He is your rock. You will not die. So as we think about that, how does knowledge of the cross influence our understanding of what it means to trust God in the face of pain and suffering? Yeah. So I love in in, in the book, Travis um, talks a little bit about um, the irrationality of evil. And I'm a concept person, so I like that. I like the idea that that we can't create a problem-free explanation for evil because it's not rational. And so in the cross, then what Jesus does, we're not just getting some kind of answer to the problem of evil from the outside. It's not just Jesus giving an answer. We're actually getting a savior who's walked in my shoes, who understands what it is to be human who understands temptation and frailty and pain and has walked through that. And that's, that's a lot more than an answer to the problem. As I said earlier, it's easy for me to engage in things of ter- in terms of ideas and answers. And this is putting, Jesus is putting flesh on it and making it about relationship. Which is a more tender thing and kind of difficult thing. It's one thing to sort things out in your own mind, you know, or want to sort things out in your own mind or feel like you have some level of control in that. But that relationship then applied to your life is something different. Yeah. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that um, you see in the first century church, like all the epistles, you see the church crying out like, oh, the Lord is coming back. Like he's because surely he's not going to leave us in this evil and brokenness. So I think it's even right, not as a form of escapism, but it is right for us to cry out like, Lord, come and heal our land. Our brokenness is immense and we cannot noodle our way out of this. We need you to come and be present with us once again. Like your goodness, we've known it to be good and real. We want to experience it more fully. And I think it does when we experience this brokenness or injustice, it makes us, it does, I think, push in on our doubt but it also makes us cry out for knowing more of the Lord's goodness and look with hopeful eyes for his return. Yeah, I mean, I think lament is so beautiful because because I think you can go with anger at knowing it's not the way it's supposed to be, right? And you can even justify that by saying, 
this isn't how God created it to be. He's angry too. But there is something that I think is really important and real about just the tenderness of the father and the reality of him sending Jesus to die. And that really should inform how we see the world because our hearts should be broken for the injustice around us and the suffering that is real and true. Um, And like you said, it's because God cares. And I think for me, where it's so helpful is realizing that that is also the God I serve Mm -hmm. because it's easy to um, just think of him as an angry father or a frustrated savior, but he cares and he lived it. And there's something that it brings, yeah, just a realness that for me is helpful um, to think through. Well, part of what you, I think that you capture with that is when you're saying that lament is helpful, because on one side, it, it almost feels easier to be angry at the state of affairs and maybe to even just mm, justify your own anger, but then also realize that in well, justify your own anger by assuming God is angry and then realizing that if I think God is angry about that, I do view him as an angry God. And the thing about anger is it allows you to keep a relational distance and it also probably communicates a relational distance. So I'd rather be angry about the injustice of a thing because then I get to stand outside of it and um, not be touched by it or not admit I'm touched by it. Um, John often says to me, my husband often says to me that you become angry most often when an insecurity of yours is touched on. And it is so true. I'd rather be angry as opposed to let somebody see that, um, what feels really vulnerable to me. So I do think that when you see what the Christ has done in the cross, he could be angry and distant, or I could look at injustice of the world and be angry and distant, but that Christ in his anger against those things became close and came close through that lament and through that sorrow and through bearing that sorrow for us. And so I think when you see the cross and you recognize that that is how God engages a broken world, it does change your own perspective. Um, and so that's kind of moving us into the other the other thing that can keep us distant from God. It can be a misunderstanding of who he is, but it can also be a misunderstanding of ourselves. And so Travis makes the point that in a faithful doubt, you can go, or in doubt, I should say, you can go one of two ways. You can go the way of pride, or you can go the way of humility. And that Habakkuk in his doubting and in his wrestling still came to the Lord. The other option would have been to move away. So he describes it in this quote, he says, faith and pride are the competing forces of the human human psyche in this prophecy, Habakkuk's prophecy. With his doubts and complaints, Habakkuk could have gone either way. Out of pride, he could have assumed God had no answers or reasons for why he allowed the things he did. Out of self-importance, he could have assumed his perspective and understanding of the world was perfect. And he could have just complained about God instead of complaining to God. When God gave him an answer he didn't like, Habakkuk could have become puffed up with pride and presumed to act as a judge over God. We all know Habakkuk could have responded in these ways because they are the ways we so often respond. Our default is to look at the events around us and in the world at large through the lens of our incredibly limited wisdom and understanding. We declare that God can't be good or God can't be in control if he allows X to happen because there's obviously no point to it. 
And rather than allowing the grief and pain created by these things to turn us to God in humble dependence with our concerns, we often simply grumble and complain about him or about the raw deal he's given us. Habakkuk is different. He humbly trusts God is right and good, even when he can't understand what God is doing. So let's flesh this out a little bit. What do y'all think about the statement that the opposite of faith isn't doubt, but pride? And how do y'all see this play out in your own lives? This was probably the most encouraging thing in the book for me personally, because I did struggle with a lot of questions. Just as some really formative years spiritually, there were some things in my life that really made no sense to me. And I really struggled through if God is good and if he loves, then how can this be? Like these things don't make sense. And I had journals and journals and journals. I was a writer and so I would write and write, but I was, it was praying, it was crying out to God. And so I think for a long time I carried that, like, I'm just a doubter. I don't really understand. Something's wrong with my faith. Um, Maybe God will never give me that faith that I desire or I don't know. Whatever it was, I always felt like something still was, like, wrong with me. And so for me, there was something really encouraging about, like, having the permission to be like, no, this is actually an okay and faithful thing to do is to question as long as you are bringing it to God. So that for me, I was like, yay, Travis. I mean, he's our friend. So I'm like texting. I'm like, I love this. This is my favorite. It's the best. I It was encouraging for me. And in a way, it speaks to me. I mean, you know, I, I listen to Julie saying that and I feel bad because she's the doubter and the questioner married to the answer guy. <laughs> um, there could have been moments that it wasn't that helpful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, when I read this quote, I, I think about, Again, as I have already confessed on here, that 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 is that's where I've often gone, is to seeking, seeking, seeking answers, and for a long time not actually being able to see the pride in that. And for me, I think um, going to Haiti is where I ran headlong in, into the problem, and that is watching so much suffering, watching it everywhere, and watching it happening to believers, and realizing that even many of the answers that we give here as Christians, the answers that I've given, or in my background as a therapist or a counselor, I just came up blank. I came up empty. And what I ended up learning from the Haitian believers around me, because I saw, as as Travis saw in Habakkuk, I saw them in the midst of pain and loss and starvation and getting up every day to face it over and over again. I saw them turning to God in it always. Not not with all of the questions, not with all of the answers, just knowing that he was there. And uh, that that rocked me. Yeah, I mean, they just showing up to worship no matter what's happening. Yeah. So this last piece is probably, uh, Julie, I know you said the last one was your favorite. I love this because it talks about the corporate nature of being a believer, how we're not little independent silos of the Holy Spirit, but we do have this interconnectedness of belonging to God the Father that we are all brothers and sisters. So we're talking about how corporate worship takes place and how oftentimes those songs are on our lips. So this is the quote from Travis's book. Corporate worship takes us out of ourselves, particularly when we're singing. Participating in gathered worship of the church isn't some magic bullet to remove all doubt, but cutting yourself off from it will make all your problems seem bigger than God. 
It's in the regular worship of God publicly with others that we learn how to be faithful with our doubts. When you gather together with others, you are reminded that you are not alone. There are other people who have been shaped by the same story. When you worship and sing praise to the Lord of life who triumphed over the grave, the one who rose victorious in the strife for those who he came to save, you'll find greater joy and comfort in the one who died to bring eternal life and lives that death may die. When you sing about how his perfect love will never change and his mercies never cease, you will experience more fully the hope of his peace and you will be empowered to actually rejoice. Singing God's praises won't remove your questions. Singing won't remove your doubts or your complaints against him, but it will put them in their place. As you worshipfully remember what your risen king has done, you will develop a grit that enables you to carry on in the face of adversity. But you will also find encouragement in the midst of despair, comfort in the midst of pain, and faith in the midst of doubt. This is why the Holy Spirit inspired Habakkuk to end his book with this song of gritty remembering faith. Not merely to fill our heads, but to develop our hearts. So what are y'all's thoughts on how we sing our faith? Do you sing in corporate worship? And how does that experience impact your questions and your doubts? We both love to like throw the speaker on in our house and just, I call it my Jesus music when I need it. When I was in Haiti, I sent a text to a friend actually. She was like, how's your day? I'm like, honestly, it's really bad. I got my Jesus music blaring. I'm just praying it penetrates my soul because I think there is so much about, you know, having the music sung to you or singing along with music. I did grow up in a church that sang out of the good old Trinity hymnal. And I, it's probably one of the things I wish that my children knew more. I know every verse to every song. It was a really big thing growing up. And I do love, love singing old hymns. There's just deep and rich and biblical. And that's probably like, I think for both of us, looking back at the Dutch churches that we grew up in, in that tradition of singing the hymns and Psalms with the organ, very simple. But for me too, a huge part of the pull back to the church was that corporate worship and corporate singing. And, you know, they would raise the roof in the church, just singing these hymns together and, you know, young and old. And so I still do the same thing. A lot of it's just uh, the old hymns. You know, when I'm in that place, when I'm struggling, when I need to be reminded, that's a lot of times where I will go. I just want to be by myself. I want to turn that up and I just want to let it just sink in and sing along. So anytime that I can be in a context where we're seeing those words along with technology, which is great, but even better when we're all together as a community, I love that. And I think as we were reading that quote from Travis, it, it reminds me of when we were in seminary together in our Psalms and Wisdom literature, professor was Jack Collins, and he just did a brilliant job. I think all of us walked out of there just talking about how the Psalms were written to literally form our hearts as we sing them to each other. And he really wanted us as pastors or as leaders in the church to think about worship that way as something that you're not just singing for yourself, but that you're preaching the truths of God to each other and that we do that together in corporate worship. We should probably talk to Jack and tell him you remembered that. That was a lot of years ago. I'll bet you Travis remembers it too. That's cool. I mean, those type of things, I think they are pivotal moments. And I mean, there is a catechizing effect of singing music. It does ingrain in our minds. We remember it. It activates so many of our senses. And I forget what kind of music it's called. Some of you music people may know. 
but you sit in a circle and you sing to literally to one another like you're singing hymns and it's no instrumentation and you're just singing to I feel like I would love that like you can see each other's faces you're literally you're not singing toward necessarily anything like the front or whatever but you're just singing encourage like speaking that truth over one another so that is just a beautiful image of how God's sung word over us does encourage us and put our doubts and our struggles and the injustice in the world gives us perspective Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that part of that quote, too, that it doesn't take it away, but that it puts it in perspective. When you're describing sitting around in a circle and singing to each other, I start to get like nervous and oh, sweaty no. and think, oh, my gosh, Same I don't know if I could do that. That's Same. so OK. Never mind. Strike. That. No, 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 no. <laughs> but it made me think you were fine with it, too, probably the counselor and you. No, I, I think. I think counselor that um, you two might like that. No, I, I think the, I think the singing thing feels kind of vulnerable. I'm okay. like, <laughs> But but I, I I just like to be in a room where we're all yeah you and know yeah the beautiful music yeah I think that is such where a... you where you almost lose yourself in it right it's yeah. a, it's an opportunity for you to become less self focused mm-hmm. because you're like part a true of the group make, exactly yeah you know? I think if I was like in the little circle looking mm, at somebody that might be a little awkward I yeah. wouldn't be able to lose that mm-hmm. self focus that's a great point uh, I do love traditional hymns and all the beautiful orchestra and the brass like we had at Reformation Sunday so pretty but also I confess we were at the Toby Mac concert a couple weeks ago. Also so fun, just like you're invited to be a worshiper in this very modern music and just to be able to be in a crowd with literally strangers. But the one thing that is unifying us is our love for Jesus. Yeah. And what y'all are bringing out, because when I when I brought that up initially, I thought that's just I need something to take me out of myself. Yeah. And so what you're saying, for me to sit in around a circle, I'd be the same way. I'd have a very hard time not being uber self-conscious, but I have a hard time not being uber self-conscious all the time. Like my mm-hmm. self-conscious is running on overdrive. And there is something about singing that helps to slow my role of the role of my thoughts. And like you described earlier, that incessant looking, analyzing, trying to figure out, trying to whatever. There is something about singing that does take those truths and penetrate further into my heart. And I think, man, it says something about me oftentimes that I'm thinking constantly, but I'm singing rarely. And just recently I've been thinking, man, I want to sit back down. I'm not a very good piano player, but I want to sit back down and just play hymns at night. Just something to put that in my mind, in the mind of my boys. I was driving the other day and this old broken bell tower at a church nearby us was tolling out. Can you say that? Was playing the song. uh, And I can't even remember what it was. But in that moment, I was struggling with this particular thought. And that verse, because I'm the same as you, a lot of those old hymns come to mind quickly. And it was just one of those chill bump moments because the Lord might as well have just have said that exact thing to me because that just applied exactly to what I was thinking. And I was like, Lord, thank you for a song and what it does Mm -hmm. and how it does penetrate beyond our minds. Our minds are involved, but it goes deeper than our minds. And I think that's part of why Habakkuk ends Habakkuk with a psalm. Like his prayer is written to be sung. You know, that might have been with that realization that the truths he wanted so to leave with those who are reading this oracle were truths that he wanted to penetrate beyond the mind and down into the heart. So thank you all so much for helping us further penetrate into the truths that we have been studying in Habakkuk. Thanks for having us. That's really great. Listeners, we hope you will join us again next season. We're going to be studying the book of Philippians, and I think it's an appropriate follow-up to Habakkuk. Habakkuk gave us a chance to learn what it means for us to take our faithful doubts to God. Philippians will give us a chance to learn more about what it means to rejoice in Him. We hope you'll listen in. 
Sometimes a light surprises the Christian wife she sees. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. When comforts are declining, he grants the soul again a season of pure shining to cheer it after the rain. 